Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, friends, and welcome back to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Averill Earls, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Patrick McDonough about his 2021 book, Gay and Lesbian Activism in the Republic of Ireland, 1973 to 1993. Patrick McDonough, welcome to the show. Hi, Avril. Lovely to be with you. It's such a pleasure to be able to chat with you. Um, I wonder if you could just begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe I'll start with the presence. So at the moment, I've, I'm working as a civil servant, working on equality, diversity and inclusion. Um, but before joining the civil service, I completed a PhD at the European University Institute in, in Florence in, in history. Um, I'm living in Dublin at the moment, but I'm originally from Clare, so I'm a proud culture, and I want to get that in now because I think it it certainly um, influenced how I came about writing the book and some of the, the approaches I took. Um, so that's just a very quick synopsis of, of who I am. Awesome. Well, on that topic, what brought you to the topic of the the gay and lesbian activism in the Republic of Ireland? Yeah, so I mean, really, it came out of a, a master's I was doing. So I did a master's in the history of totalitarianism in UCD. And, and somehow, I ended up writing about the, the homophile movement in the Weimar Republic. So I did my master's on that topic. And afterwards, I was just a little bit curious, well, you know, what is the, the history of, of gay rights activism in, in Ireland? So I kind of had a a quick look around and it became quite clear to me that there had been very little written on this topic and what had been written had revolved around one particular individual and one particular um, activity decriminalization and I was kind of wondering sort of wow is, is, is Ireland quite unique in the sense that you know it was there was no movement it was an individual you know when you look at all the other um, I suppose western countries and they had movement so that really I suppose um, caught my attention and one thing after another anyways I ended up writing the book um, but that's how it, it came about effectively yeah and so um, you know we, we can talk about David Norris in a bit because I think that really is the big contribution to the field right and in, in your conclusion your last chapter but why don't you tell us a little bit about them those important developments in the early gay rights movement in Ireland yeah, so I mean, I I start my book in in, in 1973, um, as opposed to 1974 when the Irish Gay Rights Movement was founded, and I did so for a number of reasons. One was primarily to to highlight the extent to which. It, it didn't happen in a vacuum. So there was influences from particularly Great Britain, um, filtering through to Ireland, um, but also at a European level as well, but also to, to look at the, um, I suppose, the support um, between individuals north and south of the border. So obviously this has taken place in the context of the troubles in Northern Ireland. And what struck me was the extent to which individuals north and south of the border actually worked together to to highlight and, and to start discussing the issue of, of gay rights in, in Ireland. So what I date as I suppose kind of the, the, the beginnings as, as such is, is a conference which took place in, in Coleraine in Northern Ireland in 1973. Um, and really there's a, a commitment from, from that conference to, to really look at the issue of gay rights in, in Ireland. And that leads to another conference then in, in Trinity College Dublin in February 1974. It's, it's the first, it's, it's called the first symposium on homosexuality and over 300 individuals attend. Um, and you have individuals from, from Great Britain attend 
attending as well and talking about the efforts there. So that's that ultimately leads then to, I suppose, this this greater determination in the Republic, at least, to to found a dedicated organisation committed to the issue of gay rights, which is the Irish Gay Rights Movement, which is which emerges in in 1974. Um, so it was really the the first chapter, was is looking at that the the emergence of that movement within that wider, I suppose, transnational context. Yeah, so that transnational context is something you foreground in in the early part of the book. Um, Will you talk a little bit about how the Irish gay rights movement fits in with that broader transnational context? Yeah, so I mean, as you, as you're familiar with, you know, the the, the late 1960s, um, we have the, the Stonewall rights and, you know, it's seen as a pivotal moment in the rise of, of I suppose, gay liberation, moving away from the homophile movement to more gay liberation um, focus. And that has a quite a, the Stone rights has quite a, an important impact internationally. Um, you know, you see the rise of gay liberation organisations. And that's the same in, in Ireland. In, in 1971, Queen's University Belfast sees the emergence of a, a, a gay liberation organisation there. Um, and also in, in Great Britain, you have the Campaign for Homosexual Equality, the Scottish Minorities Group. So that's filtering through to, to individuals in Ireland. And you have the likes of Edmund Lynch, um, for example, who, who writes to the Campaign for Homosexual Equality, becomes a member. Um, and you see as well some individuals coming from from Great Britain in, in early 1973 to try and set up a branch in, in, in Dublin. And what's quite funny, in one of the... I think it's the Irish Times in 1973, there's an article saying that uh, the campaign for homosexual equality comes to, to Dublin to try and set up a, an organisation and they meet with uh, a homophile organisation in Dublin. As it transpired, that organisation was actually the Legion of Marys, which was far from a, far from a gay rights organisation at that time. But they were having, they were hosting meetings for gay men at the time to try and, I suppose, correct their ways for, for want of a, a better way of putting it. Um, so you have all this kind of filtration of, of knowledge or awareness of these activities taking place outside of Ireland. And that, again, feeds into the establishment of that conference in Coleraine, which features individuals from not only the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, but also organisations in, in Great Britain. Excellent. And what were some of these groups that formed out of that that early sort of nebula of of meetings of minds? So one of the most important organisations to come out of the the Coleraine Conference was the Sexual Liberation Movement, um, and that is that that emerged in Trinity College Dublin in in November 1973. Now again, this would have been a broad based organisation, not not specifically a gay rights organization, but they also looked at issues around contraception. Um, and as I said, they were based at Trinity College Dublin, but it was comprised of both students and non-students. And they were the, the they were the ones that organized that important symposium in, in Trinity College Dublin in 1974. And they're an organization, I mean, even in the book, I don't have a whole lot about them because it's quite hard to find material about them. But I actually kept, met an individual there recently who has a small bit of an archive on the sexual liberation movement, which was which was really cool. So I got to see their their constitution. But in, in June 1974, they actually organize, I suppose, what you can call the first gay pride protest in, in Ireland um, in, in June 1974 outside the Department of Justice. There was a small number of individuals, I think 11 or 12. Um, but I think that was really significant, you know, that there was 
they were so brave t- to do that. Um, and again, they're, they're a precursor to the Irish gay rights movement that came soon after that particular protest. But again, very important in, I suppose, breaking the silence as such around the issue of gay rights I- I- in Ireland. So you also talk about in the first couple of chapters um, that there are a couple of big groups, especially in Dublin, and then they sort of build up these these affiliated groups in various parts of the country. Um, but one of the things I think is really interesting is that you talk about how they don't always get along and how difficult that can be in such a it's a, you know Ireland is not a huge country, the gay rights movement is not very large. So tell talk a little bit about how they work together, how they didn't, why, and what effect that might have had. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing that struck me as well. Um, I, when I was reading Dermot Ferger's book, he he talks about the International Gay Association, and in, it was I think it was 1981. There was a conference in in Italy, and he listed all the different national organisations. And there you have Ireland, who had I think three or four representative groups at that conference. And you're thinking to yourself, such a small country, why are there so many? So yeah, I mean. In Dublin, you had two main organisations, the Irish Gay Rights Movement and the National Gay Federation. So the National Gay Federation came out of the Irish Gay Rights Movement. Um, Ultimately, there was a personality um, differences um, and they split. Now, those two organisations did not get on at all. I suppose to boil it back, some would say, well, the National Gay Federation were more politically focused and the Irish gay rights movement were more focused on social events. Now, to what extent the social isn't political, you know, that that's another debate. But anyways, they did not get on. And then you had those who felt that, well, you know, these efforts were only confined to Dublin and you had organisations in Cork, the, the Cork Gay Collective and also Cork branch of the Irish gay rights movement who felt that, you know, the outside of Dublin individuals are being completely neglected. So there certainly was tension between organisations in, in, in Ireland. That's not to say that they didn't um, work together. They, they did. But there was certainly tension. And, you know, if you look at the National Gay Federation, it was probably the most the, the best resource organisation at the time. It set up the Hirschfield Centre, but it didn't establish branches outside of, of Dublin. And it made a decision to do so based on the fact that the Irish gay rights movements had um, attempted to do so. And they thought that it would lead to further tension. So they held back doing that. So you don't see a proliferation of organisations outside Dublin Um but as I said, I suppose in some ways it, it also provided uh, you know, further opportunities and choice for individuals. So in Dublin, in the early 80s, you two quite, you know, good gay community centres on either side of the River Liffey. Um, but it was a challenge. And, and I was speaking to one individual yesterday involved and he said, you know, it was, it was like a civil war, really. They just, it, you know, they did not, they did not get on at all. Um, and it did, I think, hold back some, you know, potential for, for greater unity. Yeah. Um, and you, this is one of the, the most important parts of your book, because obviously many of the folks who work on any sort of queer Irish stuff focus on Dublin. I'm guilty of this myself. Uh, and we're hoping that this is going to expand in, in the years to come. But you really opened that door, I think, with your work on Cork and Galway. So will you talk a little bit about how geography impacted the gay rights movement in Ireland? Um, like what role does Dublin play, but also where these developments in the further reaches in the, in the provincial level um, or those core organizations and how would they help realize the goals of the IGRM? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think it was one of the, the things that I most enjoyed in writing this book. You know, as I said, I come from a, a small village in, in the west coast of Ireland and, you know, 
quite often, you know, say that a lot of Irish history can be Dublin-centric now. So in your own case, the, the records in, in many respects dictate, you know, the stories we can tell. Um, so I was quite fortunate in, in the fact that we have the Irish Queer Archive and Orla Egan has done some wonderful work on the Cork LGBT archive and Cork LGBT history more broadly. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, it was it was certainly more challenging in, in organising outside of Dublin. But in saying that, if we take Cork, for example, I mean, it, it's you could, you know, argue quite confidently that, you know, a lot of the radical activism took place in, in Cork. You know, they were willing to challenge the status quo. It was it was not that so much re- respectability and credibility wasn't, you know, a, a driving force. Um, in Cork is to the same degree it was it in Dublin, where you'd be very careful about the image that you were presenting. In, in Cork, the, the Cork Collective were willing to you know, challenge the status quo, you know, the capitalist system, and to get involved in, in other or other activities, not just gay rights activism. And you know, they had a, a lot of success. They set up the key co-op. There was also a, a, the, the Phoenix Club in Cork as well. Um, and I think in particular that the work of the Cork Lesbian Collective as well in what they did in Cork. But I think probably the, the highlights for me is certainly the efforts in Galway. And that's not to say that, you know, they were massively transformative. They, they reached the heights of, of Cork and Dublin, but just the sheer effort and resilience of a handful of individuals in Cork to actually, or in Galway, to, to, to create an opportunity or an outlet for individuals in that region. Um, so there was a, an organisation called the Galway Gay Collective run by Maurice Walsh and John Porter. And really for much of the 1980s, it was Maurice and, uh, and John, Maurice more so, who, you know, they'd place an advertisement in, in the local press to encourage individuals to get in contact and they try and organize a number of events. Now, Maurice members remembers it being extremely challenging and she's very almost dismissive of her efforts. But, you know, one of the things that I try to do with this book as well is, is to, when we speak about gay liberation, it's not just about law reform, but it's also about the personal as well. And, you know, the fact that an individual in Galway or the West of Ireland would, would have seen an advertisement for a gay group you know, it would have helped end that isolation. So the fact that there was an outlet there for them to do so was really powerful. And that's what I was trying to get across with, with Galway was that that impact of those those organisations in those regions could have been transformative for isolated individuals. Yeah. So in terms of the social aspect of what these these groups provided for the gay and lesbian communities in Ireland. What did that look like? How did it differ between Dublin, Cork and Galway? Um, you just mentioned, you know, putting out advertisements about we're going to have this this meeting and maybe that reaches some people. But what other kinds of opportunities existed because of the work of these folks? Yeah. So if we start with Dublin, I mean, in Dublin, it was a very comprehensive setup. So you had the Hirschfield Centre in Fine Street, and you also had the Phoenix Club on North Lot, Lot Street, which um, is on the, the north side of Dublin. So if we stick with the Hirschfield Centre, you know, there was Flickers, which was a, a very popular nightclub. Um, according to Tony Walsh, um, it's, it's a Dutch word for um, faggots. So I think there's a play there on that. Um and, you know, that was a very popular disco. I mean, you're talking about two or three hundred individuals going there each Friday and Saturday night, predominantly males. Um, but, you know, within the, the Hirschfield Centre as well, you had the Liberation for Irish Lesbians. They'd have a women's only night. And then I think probably one of the most important um, things set up 
during this period was was a, a thing called Telefriend, which is a befriending service for for individuals. So again, you know, Dublin at that time was quite far away for for many people outside of Dublin. So this telephone line provided an opportunity for individuals to to make contact and even just have a, a conversation with with individuals um, to talk about their their sexuality, to put a name to. You know, a lot of people just didn't have the terminology even in the the, the early nineteen eighties. And they also, I think, you know, quite bravely set up a, a gay youth group. You know, again, there was a lot of consideration around whether or not they would. You know, they were fearful about the backlash that they might have. You know, people saying, oh, that they're preying on, on young individuals. But they, they proceeded with doing so because, again, there, there was no other outlet. And in Cork, it was pretty much the same. They had the key co-op, um, which had a really comprehensive gay book collection, actually, one of the best. Um, they'd have discos in, in the Phoenix Club. Now, in Galway, it was quite different. They just didn't have the resources or the, the personnel involved to set up a, a centre. Um, so what they used to do in the early 1980s is they used to rent a hotel room in 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 Salt Hill and um, they'd place an advertisement in the Galway Advertiser or they'd also let organisations in Dublin and Cork know that they're going to be having an event in, in this particular location and to contact this PO Box number for further information. So it prim- primarily revolved around um, hotels. But it was really, I suppose, innovative and again, the, 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 the lengths that people had to go to. Like in, in Galway, if you were organising an event, you know, you'd never be able to publicly advertise where that event was taken in place in Dublin and Cork is quite different. You know, you go to the Hirschfield Centre, you know what you're going to get. So there's kind of, um, you know, that there was there's this secrecy that an event will be taking place, but please contact this PO box number for the details. So I just thought it was really interesting the the the, the ways they had to go about doing this. But um, yeah, they were quite successful for two years. Um, and then there was, you know, the, the hotel put a stop to it, but they, they kept it going um, and they'd have the odd trips to Connemara and stuff. So, uh, yeah. again, it's it's quite remarkable, really, the resilience. It's the one thing that kind of stuck with me was that just the sheer resilience of many individuals doing all this in a voluntary nature. Right. And it seems like in addition to trying to change the law and provide social outlets for LGBT people in their regions, they're also trying to change the minds of the non-queer Irish, right? So will you talk a little bit about how, how, like what partnerships these organizations forged to try and achieve that goal, which was, you know, a big hurdle to get over to change the law itself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a really good point. Um, You know, like... Many are aware that, you know, in, in Ireland, sexual activity in males was, was criminalised um, until 1993. And a lot of the, the focus has revolved around the efforts, you know, David Norris's campaign to, amend, to, to amend that that those particular laws. But what, what struck me again um, was just the extent to which the activities were not just confined to that particular effort, nor were they confined to the courtroom. So, for example, in the book, I look at the, the role of, of students and, and, the, and the efforts on university campuses. So, again, it, it's this, these battles to, to claim the right to exist within particular institutions. And that was quite clear when you look at the universities and the progress that is 
is made towards the, the late 1980s where universities are finally recognizing gay societies after years of refusing to recognize them. So that was one thing that struck me. It was the role of students. Um, and I think it's an issue which wider Irish history has ignored is the role of the student movement and the role of university campuses as well in, in changing Irish society um, for the better. So, so that was certainly one thing that struck me, but also the likes of the trade union movement. So we're in 2022 now, but you know, 40 years ago in, in 1982, um, the trade union movement came out in support of decriminalization and that's often overlooked. And there was a lot of effort, particularly by activists in, in court to get the trade union to buy into the fact that gay rights were workers' rights. And they were very successful in, in doing so. And what's often overlooked is, you know, 1993, we see the amendment of the, the laws criminalising sexual activity to males, but you also have the amendment of the Unfair Dismissals Act to include sexual orientation. So these efforts are, are continuing in the background. And, you know, while we talk about 1980s, Ireland has been a very, you know, depressing period and, you know, there was a lot of backlash and that certainly was the case. But there was also a lot of, you know, positives, particularly from a gay rights context in terms of, you know, getting different organisations to buy into the gay rights movement. And we often forget that or it has been overlooked to, to some degree um, quite a bit. Yeah. And then, of course, the 1980s came with its own challenges of the AIDS crisis, which impacted globally. But how did that impact Ireland and how did the AIDS crisis then impact the the fight for gay rights since there's obviously this this move and this effort for decriminalization and, and changing the the very nature social understanding of of gayness right yeah yeah no i mean in many respects it, it, it resembles i suppose other countries and you know ireland was no different in the sense that you know a lot of the the response fell on the shoulders of the gay community. So again, like in other countries, the early years, it, it's very much presented as a gay disease, a gay cancer. Um, and you see these headlines, the sensationalism of, of that um, in, in the Irish papers at that time. And I suppose just within an Irish context, you know, <laughs> Where Ireland is slightly different is one, the Catholic Church holds considerable sway over the educational system. You know, sex education is, is, is unheard of. Contraception is next to impossible, at least, to get. You know, the, the, the laws are very restrictive in terms of access to contraception. You, you have to be married almost to get it. Um, and in 1985, when, when you know, the, the situation is getting quite bad, only a minority, a majority of three supported to to liberalise the, the the laws um, slightly, but the entire Fianna Fáil party voted against that, and, and they ultimately come into power soon after. Um, and by way of I suppose just a sideline as well, you know, the mid nineteen eighties, David Norris's case is going through the courts, it's going to the European Court of Human Rights, and quite shamefully, um, you know, the Irish government kind of stuck for a defence for the laws, um, looks to the possibility of using AIDS as a defence in the, the case. And despite 
evidence coming back that actually these laws would um, make it more difficult to, to stop the, the, the transmission of, of HIV and, and AIDS. Um, it's a further, you know, eight or nine years before the government actually amends the law. So that's the kind of the mentality of the Irish state at that time. They're very reticent about getting involved. They just don't really want to engage with this issue of, of homosexuality or sex or sex education. So in 1985, a small cohort of individuals um, come together and establish Gay Health Action. And really, I think they're, they're the one organization that really left an impression on me in the sense that, you know, I think everyone should be familiar with the work that they did because, you know, but for Gay Health Action, you know, one can only imagine how much worse the situation would be in Ireland. Um, you know, they pioneered public AIDS education at that time and in a very explicit manner as well. So whereas the government was was very vague when they eventually got involved, you know, avoid intimate sexual contact, uh, you know, whatever that means. Um, you know, they, they don't even want to talk about the use of condoms. Gay Health Action are getting out there with very explicit information, you know, avoid um in lint of course without a condom you know no fisting you name it like it's it's so so explicit for 1980s ireland um they set up the first support service as well but what's interesting about that is is you you get to see the extent to which some papers at least and commentators begin to look at the, the gay community with a lot more respect and you see that towards 1990s in, in some speeches in Leinster House, you know, but for the, the gay community, you know, the, the heterosexual community owe a debt of gratitude to the gay community. Um, and you see that as well in the, the laws around condoms being, being amended in 1992 and 1993, the, but for the efforts of the gay community as well. So it was a very challenging period, you know, um, but there was this, I think, towards the, the, the end of the decade, at least, a greater respect for, for the gay community amongst a particular cohort in Irish society, which I think was important. Yeah. And so obviously, as you've noted, right, one of the major challenges that gay and lesbian people face was this particularly socially conservative environment. So it, it was never just the law that needed changing. It was public perceptions of same-sex love. So I think you, you're arguing, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that this moment, this this AIDS crisis actually is part of this shift. So what is, what is it that, I mean, I think you're saying that uh, David Norris is He's, he gets this legal decision. It's 87. Um, and that's five years until there's actual law reform. So what do you think it is that is the the culmination or is it a culmination of events that are, are changing this this law and changing public perception and particularly in the law? Yeah, I think it's a culmination of, of a lot of things. So I suppose, again, a lot of the, the movements were, were very clever as well in the rhetoric that they adopted, you know. So throughout, so since the establishment of the Irish Gay Rights Movement um, up to the establishment of the Gay and Lesbian Equality Network, the, the messaging is, is quite, you know, they're, they're very careful. Like, they're, they're gay rights are human rights. So they're very explicit in that we're not asking for any, you know, special rights. These are just basic human rights. And that's really, I think, resonates a lot with, with Irish society. Um, and, you know, they, by, by appearing in, in public in Ireland, by going on, you know, TV, you know, we didn't have that many channels at that time. So if you did appear in the Late Late Show, you know, quite a significant proportion of the population would have seen you. So coming out there and putting a human face to, to um, homosexual 
homosexuality certainly had a, a major impact. But I also think, again, these efforts to engage with, with key stakeholders, the trade union movement, the students, and gradually to be working on, on the, some of the political parties, but also, again, the support of the international community. Um, so I think it, it, they, they humanised um, gay rights and gay and lesbian individuals, you know, because before that they were all presented as, you know, deviants. Um, so they were quite successful in using the media as well um, to, to get their message out there. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, I do think the AIDS crisis and, and the response to the gay community was quite transformative as well, um, because you know, in Ireland, the, the highest percentage of cases were intravenous drug users. And you, you have a lot of different, I suppose, heterosexual members of the community who come to rely on the gay community for support and assistance. And I think that does have a transformative effect. Um, and I think there is, you know, a, a social and cultural shift taking place as well in Ireland, you know, by the, the, the early 1990s. Um, you know, it, the I suppose the scandals of the church are starting to appear. We have the X case around the, you know, abortion. Um, so there is a change happening. And I think ultimately, when it comes to law reform, um, Glenn in particular had a very successful campaign. Like there was a big coalition of individuals, both inside and outside Ireland, lobbying quite effectively to amend the laws. Um, and the opposition by that stage is a... Uh, is a small enough group and you have the Catholic Church and I think at that stage the church's influence has certainly waned quite a, a big degree um, so I think that the government made a decision that it, there probably would be more controversy if they um, didn't introduce what was considered quite progressive legislation at that time um, and as I say Glenn had mounted a very effective um, campaign that this is about equality and nothing more and nothing less yeah yeah, I mean, I think your book makes a really compelling case for looking at this period um, of transformation, right? But not transformation that just happened, but I think happens because of all these people and groups that are working together to change the culture from the inside. It's it's really quite a stunning um work i mean the work itself that they did but also the work that you've done to, to to make that case right like it i think it really frames the 1990s as in 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 a different way than even i've thought about it right before yeah yeah i usually chalk it up to the celtic tiger like oh people have money now so they don't need to go to church <laughs> and they can vote you know you know more more progressively but i think this really demonstrates that there's it's so much work and it's 20 years of work um to get to that point yeah. yeah. And I think you see that as well. Like, you know, it's one thing that kind of struck me around marriage equality, almost like, you know, that this had happened almost overnight. You know, the the narrative was, oh, it was only decriminalized in 1993 and now we're at marriage equality. But actually the road or the, the, the journey is a lot longer. You know, you have to go back to 1973 and a lot of the alliances and organizations that came out in support of marriage equality in 2015 had been built up back in the 1980s. You see it again, the students, the trade union movements, some of the left-wing parties. So you cannot just look at these things in a vacuum. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, this has been really great, Pat. I, I think we've taken up enough of your time today. I know you have another appointment, but before we let you go, tell us where can people get a copy of Gay and Lesbian Activism in the Republic of Ireland? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So if you go to bloomsbury.com um, and for your listeners in the US, if they put in 
activism 21 us they'll get a 35 percent discount um so yeah listen thanks so much it's just been lovely to to get a chance to talk about it um and i really yeah. appreciate the support yeah thanks so much for being on the show today and folks do go out and get a copy of that uh of, of the book it's it's very it's worth a read it's gonna make it on your shelves and be added to all your history courses on <laughs> irish and gender and sexuality etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah <laughs> thanks Beth, for being here thanks Mel.